Hello and welcome to Overdrive, a program with an infatuation about trains, planes and especially automobiles. I'm David Brown and in this program we have news stories including automotive organisations reach agreement on transition to electric vehicles. BMW has a new generation 7 series including the first ever fully electric model and historical heroes show the benefits of good data. In our feature stories, would you buy an expensive car with few modern features that will cost you more than $80,000 to get on the road? We have been driving the 70th anniversary edition of the Toyota Land Cruiser 70 series. Great off-road, not great on-road, very basic, but loved by owners. And Brian Smith and I discussed some of the outcomes from the just-finished Australian Institute of Traffic Planning and Management National Conference. You can find more information at drivenmedia.com.au. But let's get going. First, the news. BMW have released the specifications and pricing of their 7th generation flagship sedan, the 7 Series, which is due for launch in Australia in the final quarter of 2022. Hire cars and cars for dignitaries have been a strong market for the BMW 7 Series in the past. It is being offered only in a long wheelbase model, which is 131mm longer, 48mm wider and 65mm taller than the model it replaces. It will be available with the choice of an inline six-cylinder twin-turbo petrol engine or, for the first time, an all-electric system. The electric version is the top performer with 43% more kilowatts and 39% more torque than the petrol model and with a 106 kilowatt hour battery, has a rated range of 625 kilometres. There are 11 cars with sales this year in the upper large sedan over $100,000 category, including the Mercedes S-Class, the Porsche Panamera and Bentley and Rolls-Royce sedans, but the total sales for the category in the first half of the year is a minuscule 247 vehicles. Total sales of all vehicles in Australia in this period are nearly 540,000. The petrol engined model, excluding on-road costs, is priced at $268,900, while the electric model is $29,000 dearer at $297,900 plus on-roads. There are also some hefty priced option packages. Most popular cars now have an extensive and advanced range of features, so to stand out, the 7 Series BMW has automatic opening and closing doors accompanied by a, quote, grand entrance light sequence, unquote. There's an optional rear seat 31-inch theatre screen and daytime running lights feature Swarovski crystals which apparently are man-made gems manufactured in Austria since 1892. Representatives of the wide variety of businesses that are involved in the automotive industry that make, sell, distribute, service, repair, supply components and accessories, dismantle, recycle and train tens of thousands of automotive professionals have agreed on 25 principles to facilitate the transition to electric vehicles. 
These include mandatory CO2 targets, not electric vehicle targets, supporting a national zero and low emission vehicle electrification transition strategy, considering the entire registration vehicle fleet and the needs and requirements of Australians, maintaining the safety, security, service, repair and efficiency of the internal combustion engine fleet, opposing the introduction of bans that limit consumer choice, and ensuring that targets and milestones are ideally federally led, or at least nationally consistent, and are realistic and supported by facts. The historic agreement was reached at an industry summit to consider the practical transition to electrification. The organisations say they have welcomed and congratulated the Albanese government for its decisive action in fulfilling its promise for fringe benefits tax exemption for electric vehicles. The legislation was in the first batch of 13 bills introduced to the Parliament and will encourage the uptake of EVs once passed. For good fleet purchasing and operational management, you need good data. But there are some strong concerns that government transport decisions are not always based on the best or even good data. This can arise when the accuracy of surveys has not been tested, cost-cutting means the comprehensiveness of surveys is reduced, poor analysis of the available information, and or political considerations. At the recent Australian Institute of Traffic Planning and Management National Conference, Traffic, a transport data collection company, introduced their community project, Heroes of Data. This is an ongoing series that highlights people in history who have shown how critical good data is as the basis of moral judgments, community projects and social reform. Florence Nightingale is known as the Lady with the Lamp, but this epitaph was not to her liking and was promoted by politicians and the media to make the Crimean War appear heroic. Reputable references describe her as a statistician and social reformer. Her measures showed that in the hospital in which she served, ten times more soldiers died from communicable diseases, such as typhoid, cholera and dysentery, than from battle wounds. She is considered the mother of modern nursing. There are even good examples in literature. The fictional character of Sherlock Holmes is cantankerous, intolerant, self-opinionated and above all arrogant, but he knew that his brilliant explanations had to be based on data. He said, It is a capital mistake to theorise before one has data. Insensibly one begins to twist the facts to suit the theories instead of theories to suit the facts. Another comment he made is, There is nothing more deceptive than an obvious fact. Statistics from fleet management can add to the value of our considerations for transport projects, but we have to make sure that the right people are listening. And that has been the news. G'day, Rob. How are you? David, good. How are you? A little perplexed. The Land Rover 70 series, I'm not sure I understand who and why. Um, that's a really good question. And if you're looking for an answer for me, I don't know that I can give you one, really. They're very popular, but I don't understand why. Well, I mean, I do in some ways. They're excellent off-road and they really do have a character about themselves. But 
in terms of what you pay and what you get, there's it's it's a bit of a perplexing situation, that's for sure. It is really a upmarket land cruiser, but without any of the luxury features. Well, you can't really say that because of their 70th anniversary model, they have put a few extra little you know, luxury things in there, like two cup holders instead of one. <laughs> um, they've got dark and 16-inch alloy wheels, and they've actually got um, you know LED headlights. So you know, they've, they're wheel arch flares, front fog lamps, so they've gone all out on this model. <laughs> it is a model that you can tell how fast you're going by the wind noise. Oh, absolutely. And the good thing is you can't, well, I suppose you can, but you can't really go that fast. But <laughs> it definitely has a characteristic of its own, that's for sure. I should say now, before I make all these comments, that I love it. But it does have some idiosyncrasies, that's for sure. I think at this stage, Rob, you better go to a psychiatrist, lie on a couch and tell us what in your background has brought you to love these vehicles. They they are the epitome of no-fuss outdoor off-roading. Oh, look, they are. And, and when you take them off-road, there really isn't many that are better. For example, I mean, they do have front and rear diff locks and a beautiful low range in there and you know, great approach departure angle and robust as you could possibly imagine. So off-road, they're excellent. And they have improved their on-road manners, but there's still a long way to go. I, I think, to be honest, the, the biggest buyer of these type of vehicles and the the Ute series as well, is mines, commercial applications, that type of stuff. Yeah. While there certainly are some normal, well, I'll use that word. Advisedly. People that buy these vehicles. Um, mostly it is, you know, the mostly it's the commercial applications where they're sold the most. I'm talking to some people who have farms and, and people that tow old traditional classic racing cars and things. I mean, sedans as well as open wheelers perhaps, but one that they want to tow around in a variety of situations, but be first and foremostly solid. They don't want to have any worries about it while they're out there doing either their work or their racing enjoyment. There's no doubt that these are as robust as you could possibly get in terms of a four-wheel drive and a towing vehicle. Do you see many of them around? I see a lot of, where I am, I see a lot of utes. A lot of the tradies have the utes. Okay. I see a lot of the troop carriers. The the four-door wagon, the GXL one that we're talking about now, not so much. I mean, the troop carriers definitely have a cult following, as and the utes definitely have a following in, with the tradies. Some people love them. I know one bloke that has three. He should be ahead of you in the queue to the psychologist, I think. Uh, we've had that conversation many times, yes. <laughs> you talk about the utes and the troop carrier, that the troop carrier would be a, a good example for tourism out in the off-road, certainly rough road conditions. Oh, absolutely. And most of the ones that you see are decked out in some way, shape or form for outback touring. A lot of tour operators have the troop carriers and fit them out with seats in the back, even extend the wheelbase. Oh. And in that environment, you, you can't get better, to be honest. Extending the wheelbase, that would make it a bit like an old school bus in America. That's what it would look like. Yeah, well, yes. Yeah, we've actually got one, one tour operator up here that has one with an extended thing, and he drives all over the dunes in it. And I don't know how old it is, but it just keeps going without a problem. And I think that's why people love them. They just keep going generally without a problem. There's not a lot 
goes wrong with them. You don't have to be fussy with them. Yeah, they're just the definition of a robust four-wheel drive. I actually owned one of my previous vehicles. was a 1986 Land Cruiser Sahara. And I've got to tell you that the air conditioning slides in this new model are exactly the same as that one. (laughs) They must have a huge parts bin somewhere. (laughs) I think you've hit on a point there that a lot of people do things to them to suit their particular needs, be it the tourist, be it the person on the the farm or be it a, a business. And if you make that commitment to a car, financial commitment, as well as setting it up for what you want, you want it to go forever. Absolutely true. Yeah. There's a lot of money that's involved in a few of those things, and you're right, they want to actually have something that's going to allow them to get payback on that investment. And you don't want the super-duper luxury item to be going wrong and costing you more money. You want to set it up and you just want to go. That's true. And, I mean, I have drove this one a couple of weeks ago that you're driving now, and, you know, I sort of thought to myself, "There's I can do without you know, automatic headlights and I can do without automatic wipers. I can turn all those things on and off myself. That's not an issue. But there's a couple of little things where I think, even though you're buying it as a robust four-wheel drive, you do need, and one of them definitely is a reversing camera. Yes. Every single car should have a reversing camera, and none more so than this, because you've got no idea what's behind you. The other thing I found was that you know, every time you parked in a car park, some generous person decided they would move your left-hand exterior mirror. So yes. you have to adjust the damn thing every time. You know, there's no adjustment. There's absolutely no controls on the steering wheel. I think that says that this vehicle is from a time past. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. Hmm. And again, a lot of those sort of things, you get sort of lulled into a full sense of luxury. You can do without a lot of those things. And driving a vehicle like this, I think, brings you back to basics. It, it says, you know, yes, you can have all those things, but you don't need them. They're all little extras. Equally, I think the the list price of it now is seventy eight thousand five hundred plus on roads. Ah, it's not as if you are buying a basic and then doing what you want to it. You're paying for a fairly expensive car, of which you then do something on top as well, be it bull bars or whatever. Uh, absolutely, you know, seventy five thousand dollars is a lot of money to pay for a car, and at that price range, it comes up short in a lot of the things that you would actually expect. To get in that vehicle, 55 or 60, different proposition. But I do know a number of people that buy these and walk into the likes of an ARB franchise or something like that and drop another 20 or 25 on top again. It's a marriage, really, isn't it? Oh. You're taking on, for better or for worse, for richer, for poorer, but over, one would hope, an extended period of time. Well, I think if you put it in that context, it actually becomes quite cheap. It's cheaper than a marriage, so it's probably better. <laughs> I wasn't trying to get into that uh, particular area <laughs> in detail. but <laughs> uh, Look, look I, I think the, the 70th anniversary series wagon, I think, I mean, look, I'm just happy that these type of vehicles still exist, to be honest. You know, in this world that everything's changing, becoming much more you know, softer and SUV-like. I, I love the fact that you know, vehicles like this and the Jeep Rubicon exist. You know, and the new Ineos Grenadier that's coming out soon. It means that you know, for those people that really do like a true robust four-wheel drive that will really want to take them anywhere they want to go in Australia and tow what they want to tow, you've got that opportunity. Yes, but you think the rattle of a diesel engine is music to your ears. It's it's take me home, country road, that is. <laughs> 
you want to have links to Spotify so you can play all of those sort of country and Western songs, don't you? Actually, yeah, well, absolutely. It's, it's funny you mention that because, I mean, this vehicle has still has the old V8 diesel and it just it has its own sound when it starts up and it really is comforting. And I must admit, I sat there a few times and just started it up and got, yep, that sounds good. <laughs> Well, Rob, thank you for taking me back into a sort of motoring history in a way, as well as a a psychology of many people and relevance of how a vehicle fits into our perception of life as much as it does just of what we're driving along the road. Thanks for your time. Uh, David, thank you. Oh, I've got to go. That's my psychiatrist calling. I think she must have been listening. (laughs) She recognises that she might well be able to book you into more sessions. Absolutely, I think. (laughs) And that's Rob Fraser from osroma.com.au, a site that can give you all sorts of information about travelling in our great outdoors. You're listening to Overdrive. Midsize sedans are becoming less popular as the SUV revolution continues. However, there are a number of good vehicles in that range, none more than the Hyundai Sonata. Relaunched in mid-2021, the Sonata comes in one well-equipped model only, the N-Line version. The styling is almost coupe-like with a sleek profile, sloping bonnet and wide, low stance that is enhanced by the stylish 19-inch alloy wheels and 245-45 sports tyres. Inside, it's all comfort with heated and ventilated power-adjustable front seats, heated outboard rear seats, dual-zone climate air conditioning, wireless smartphone charging and a panoramic glass sunroof. The large central screen houses a surround-view monitor, smartphone connectivity and boasts premium audio. The rear seats are adequate and boost space good, but with many sedans, the opening is a little tight. Powered by a 213-kilowatt, 2.5-litre turbo four-cylinder engine, it drives the front wheels with a launch function through an 8-speed dual-clutch gearbox. I particularly like the push-button transmission and the three-driving-mode functionality. Priced from around $51,500 plus the usual costs, it is especially good value. This is a Motoring Minute. I'm Rob Fraser. You're listening to Overdrive. Last week, we attended a conference in Sydney organised by the Australian Institute of Traffic Planning and Management. It was their national conference, the first time they've got together since COVID. And our good friend Brian Smith was there as well, and he joins us on the line to have a bit of a chat about it. G'day, Brian. G'day, David. What did you particularly enjoy or get out of the conference? Do you know one thing I, I enjoyed and I noted, David? So the theme was mobility, right? Um, but one thing I did notice, um, which was reassuring, was though it's the Australian Institute of Traffic Planning and Management, not a single presentation mentioned traffic. Uh, so the theme was mobility. There was a lot of stuff, um, a lot of uh, things about uh, public transport, about um, demand modelling, like strategic modelling, um, a whole lot of stuff on on cycling and, in, and inclusive journeys and, and safety. And, of course, the, the session that you moderated, David, the innovative solutions for wicked problems. So I think, I think the, um, the reassuring thing for me is how far we've moved away um, from traffic. I mean, AITPM has been around a long time and you and I have meant, been to many con conferences, David, and and they used to be like quite detailed technical papers about, you know, the operation of intersections and, and traffic impact assessment. Yet 
yeah, we've moved way beyond that, and now it's it's a much more inclusive and sort of holistic approach to mobility and land use and customer needs. I think they would love to change their name to at least the Institute of Transport Planning and Management rather than just traffic. As you say, that's a history of its evolution from when it really started out of coordinating traffic lights and the technology and mm. not just having engineers, but having a broader range of people, technical people in there who may not have an engineering degree. That's a bit of an expansion, but your expansion you talk about is quite right. It's now much more holistic. You went to one of the session in particular? Yeah, yeah. so there was an interesting session about um, about mobility and, and demand management. Mm. Very interesting. Um, uh, and included a, a, a presentation by a client that I'm doing work with in Tasmania, sort of talking about, um, you know, how that city is trying to, to change the way they think about, you know, how mobility works in that city. It's very car-dominated. But they're doing a whole lot of stuff uh, to make it easy to get around by bus and walking and cycling. And, and Alice Woodruff uh, from a company called Active City um, talked about some work that she was doing um, to try and encourage uh, people to change the access mode to hospitals and how interesting it is that, you know, when you talk hospitals, immediately people start saying, well, you know, shift work, you know, they, they can't use public transport or they can't walk and cycle, it's not safe. Um, but the research suggested that there was actually quite a lot of interest in being able to uh, to get to the hospital by foot or by bike, um, and that really the shift work question was quite a small one. And and she had these great examples of how you know the the whole place is designed around car access, and and in fact in one photograph there was a, a photograph of a road, and where the footpath would normally be was landscaping. So, but instead of affecting, taking away the landscaping to provide for pedestrians, they drew a line on the road and had the pedestrians walk on the roadway next to the cars. And while just to their left is um, a footpath filled with landscaping. Mm. So just for, you know, I guess this issue that, um, that we often don't think at all about walking and cycling as real modes, you know, we're, we're very focused on vehicles and, and using, uh, you know, moving people around by car, you know, for pedestrian safety, we're going to put fences up to stop people walking on the road, or we're going to yes. to build a, a pedestrian bridge so that they can get over a road. And these are all things that are basically creating additional barriers to those modes in the name of safety. I love your, your reflection that real data about the the people in the health system is not really what we expect. One of the things that we did for the conference was Heroes of Data, and one of our Heroes of Data was a fictional character, Sherlock Holmes, because Sir Arthur Conan Doyle used, even though Sherlock Holmes was a very arrogant person, he knew that there was a need for data. He said, Conan Doyle through Sherlock Holmes said, it is a capital mistake to theorise before one has data. Insensibly, one begins to twist the facts to suit the theories instead of the theories to suit the fact. He also said, and I quote from the Boscombe Valley Mystery, a Sherlock Holmes short story, there is nothing more deceptive than an obvious fact. That's a very, very good point, David. And, and in fact, Alice Woodruff talked about an obvious fact that that um, 
you know, you're saying, well, how can we encourage people to change modes of access to this hospital? And they had a, da- a data point that said that 77% of people were satisfied with their commute. And so you go, well, you know, most people are happy. They, they don't want to change. But you flip that over and you say, well, 23% potentially dissatisfied with their commute. And that's not nothing, right? That's like a fifth of the people. Mm. And so rather than looking at that, you know, the, the big number that tells you you've got a problem, you look for the opportunity in that. And, and 23%, you change 23% mode, you're making a huge impact on, on the uh, congestion, et cetera. There's a couple of things too about not only do we need to change what people are doing, we need to be cognizant of what's happening, freight and delivery and parcel delivery and so on, is becomes a very important point that we manage as it develops in the future, not just once it's become a problem. So, David, you um, you moderated a session called Innovative Solutions to Wicked Problems. And in fact, I had a a colleague uh, referred to you as a very good moderator. How, how did you go and what were the wicked problems? Wicked can mean, of course, evil or immoral, but it can also mean very difficult to model or predict the weather is a wicked problem. It's very difficult. It can also be mischievous. You've got a wicked sense of humour. In modern parlance, it is pretty cool. Hey, yeah, that was wicked. <laughs> that was wicked. And you remember that last session where David Hencher, Professor Hencher, a good friend of ours, spoke about electric vehicles, which are good from a pollution point of view, but we're going to have to manage the fact that they are then cheaper to run. Still expensive to buy, but cheaper to run. If they're cheaper to run, does that mean we encourage more transport, more cars? Also, you remove the guilt that people (laughs) may feel about driving distances (laughs) using an internal combustion engine car and, and they feel, oh, actually, I can do this now. I have the freedom to do it. I don't feel guilty that I'm polluting. Mm. But, the, but he made the very important point that the car's a car. It's congestion. You know, there are two, two wicked problems in the city. One is pollution um, and the other is congestion. And you can't solve, solve them without behaviour change, I think. And the notion that pollution is a significant problem, but it's not just, again, an obvious fact that's going to solve it. It's a multivariant. There's, there's a lot of wickedness in the detail. But there's also, to my mind, if you get people who take a fact and then shout it as though it's the total answer, even if they haven't checked it or know it or, or dismiss anyone else's comment on it, I think that's a wickedness that goes into the concept of immorality, if, uh, that we are manipulating people for our own end by misusing data or even what is assumed to be data when, in fact, it's just a hypothetical. You're, I think you're right, David. Uh, I read somewhere that um, the, some of the reasons that some of the major newspapers are encouraging people to, to go back to work in, in the city is that it's commuters that mostly buy their newspapers. <laughs> <laughs> if, if they're not catching the train, they're losing some money. So they, they, have a, they have a vested interest in getting you back on the train with your Daily Telegraph open at the sport pages. All right, Brian, lovely to talk to you and thank you for your technology and uh, your impact. I will look up uh, those people, particularly in the Tasmanian and other exercises. I think that'd be good. Thanks, David. It was a, it was a pleasure to be at that conference face-to-face and to see you there, of course. <laughs> we rarely see each other in the flesh these days. Well, we work a lot at home, but at least not 100% of the time. And that's Brian Smith talking about the AITPM conference on transport 
not just traffic and that technology, but transport as a community service. You're listening to Overdrive. Today we're going to talk about flat batteries. We've all had one, usually at the most inconvenient time, but SeaTac tells us there are things we can do to minimise this happening. Nipping out to grab a coffee drains the batteries. It takes a fair bit of power to start the engine on short trips and the alternator won't have time or capability to replace its charge. The answer is to take a longer drive, say weekly. A battery can lose as much as 35% in performance when temperatures hit freezing and can affect the way a car starts, so keep your battery warm. Now here's one I didn't think of, leaving your car key in your car overnight, or even on a hook near the car is not recommended. If the fob is too close to your car, it can continue to communicate with it, which could needlessly drain the battery. Batteries will drain naturally over time if not used, clock, radio, alarm or drain power, unless not mention leaving the interior light on, as most of us have done at some time. Charging your car battery at least once a month prolongs its life by up to three times. So buying a reliable battery charger and getting yourself into a regular battery maintenance routine makes perfect sense year round. And this has been Overdrive. My thanks to Rob Fraser, Brian Smith and Paul Just for their help with this program. Overdrive is syndicated across Australia on the Community Radio Network. For more information, go to drivenmedia.com.au. I'm David Brown. Thanks for listening.